Well, good morning, Kern Church. Perhaps I can be among the first to welcome you and say, Merry, Merry New Year. Please be seated for just a moment. Uh, I have a few announcements I'd like to highlight for you, and perhaps I will start with the most obvious of those. Will is not here today. So I'm going to use that as a teaching moment to tell you something about the, uh, the liturgical calendar. Many of you know that Christmas was a week ago, and many of you also know that Epiphany is next week, but this Sunday on the liturgical calendar is Methodist ministers are away on vacation day. Uh, I think in my 20-some-odd years of doing this, this is seven or eight New Year's or New Year's Day sort of events for me. So anyway, I'm really glad you're here. I'm tickled. Uh, uh, if you're willing and able, let's bow our heads and join our hearts and minds in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we call your Spirit among us this morning. An extra measure of your Spirit that we might uh, worship in a way that brings you glory and is pleasing to you. We, uh, we would like our fellowship to be its very brightest and we need you for that. We would like to hear from you today, Father. Our world struggles each and every day and, and we need each other more and more than, than we express and maybe even than we act in our lives. So Father, come among us. Help us to put down the things that restrict our worship. Help us to truly immerse ourselves in a few moments of Sabbath this day as we worship You. And we are so grateful for the hymn who brings love and grace each and every day. And it's in that name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Pastor Will selected the off-lectionary scripture that we will read here in just a few moments back when he thought that he would be standing here doing a sermon for you and he would be completing his sermon series on the carols of Christmas. And he had intended to emphasize this morning, go tell it on the mountain as a famous hymn that most of us know. Now when Will asked me if I would leave this morning, he said, of course, you don't have to do that. You don't, I know you like lectionary, Steve. You don't have to go off course and perhaps get hit by lightning by not reading Scripture that's lectionary from the pulpit this morning. Uh, and he also said you don't have to make any effort to relate it to the Christmas carol, any of them, or in particular, go tell it on the mountain. But I said, oh, shoot, let's just go for it all. And so, I'm going to make a stab at that. Here in just a moment, I will read the Scripture for today. And for those of you who have a Bible or a handheld device you'd like to look it up on, I'll go ahead and tell you that so you can find it now. It is the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The final paragraph, in fact. It is chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And most Bible scholars call that the Great Commission. And I'm pretty sure that you've heard it before a time or two. I hope so, but I'm going to ask you for a couple of things before I read that for you here in just a moment. And the first is, at least speaking for me, I know that when I have heard Scripture before and I hear it read to me, my mind tends to jump ahead to what I anticipate those words say, what I think I remember that it says, and how I have interpreted it in the past. But I'd like for you to try, if you can this morning, to listen with new ears 
Hear it for the first time. Hear the nouns and verbs. Who's being addressed? Who's being asked to do what? Without anticipating. Without letting yourself get ahead, so to speak. And I think it's important for lots of reasons to read Scripture that way, but the first and most important I will emphasize on a new day, a new year, is that God can't speak to you new if you've already heard what He has to say. So, let's try a little bit and listen to that. For those who uh, care, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. And I'm a rusty, crusty curmudgeon and a traditionalist at heart. And if you are able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading and the hearing of the Word. This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but others doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. So, I suspect most of you know the hymn, Go Tell It on the Mountain. You've probably sung it dozens of times in church services. Um, Mostly in the Advent season, I would expect. Christmas and thereabouts. Or particularly on Epiphany Sunday, which is next week. Um, It was even featured in our youth Christmas program about 10 days back. I hope you had an opportunity to see that. For those who know the song, know that the refrain tells us that the news we are to spread over the hills and everywhere is nothing less than the declaration of the birth of Jesus Christ. We're to tell the whole world that a Savior has been born. Indeed, cause for serious celebration. For me, sort of a happy, happy, joy, joy assignment and song. But what we just read in Matthew 28 seems to emphasize something a little different in our discipleship. Different, but not necessarily far afield. Over and above announcing the birth of this Savior, this newcomer is Lord of all things. And in response, we are more to just say that that Lord is here, we are to make disciples. I don't see that those instructions, shouting from the mountaintop and making disciples are necessarily different or contradictory. For me, they're sort of cause and effect relationship. And so in that vein, I want to offer this morning in the message a series of visual exercises, a series of images to help us bridge the gap between the happy, happy, joy, joy, tell it from the mountaintop, and what that really means and looks like in our lives as we attempt to make disciples. And so I'm going to use the term heart songs for these images. 
The term heart songs, at least for me, was popularized by someone named Matty Stepanek. Maybe you recognize that name, remember that Matty was a best-selling American poet and essayist who died some years ago at age 13 of a rare form of MS. And before his death, he popularized a number of terms as he wrote about his condition, wrote about the things he felt, wrote about how people interacted him with him in his dying condition. And he described these things called heart songs. And for Maddie, a heart song was defined as some particular inner peace, some particular focus or purpose that was evident to anybody who was watching your life and was paying attention to who you were and how you behaved. And it related directly to your purpose, your reason for being. And so, in our focus today, making disciples, I'm going to call these images heart songs of discipleship. So, image number one for you. Have you ever noticed when we go a long period without rain around here, a period of drought, it happens most summers around here, at least for a little while, that the soil becomes so hard and dry that it loses elasticity. It can no longer flow and stretch as it shrinks due to moisture loss during this drought. And so it pulls apart and it cracks instead. And sometimes these cracks run very deep into the earth. And when earth and ground move as a result of those things, it can break pipes. It can disrupt home foundations. I've got a spot on my house that's a little bit from things like that. Now, when it finally rains, picture in your mind if you can, those first few raindrops of a summer thunderstorm. Those great, big, fat, squishy, gushy raindrops that are anything but spherical. They just sort of sag everywhere and they flow and look like a blob. And when they land and they hit the surface of the earth that is so dry and parched, and they land, look closely at that. Can you see that under a lot of drought conditions, the raindrops do not soak into the earth? The earth that is so very dry that every time you step on it, it sends up a little dust cloud of prayer toward heaven? It's that dry and the water won't go in. Instead, those raindrops, those big squishy-gushy raindrops tend to land on the surface and they splatter into a bunch of tiny little raindrops. Mostly perfect little spheres, look like BBs, about that size too, often enough. And they rest easily upon the surface but do not soak into the surface immediately. It turns out that that behavior is more or less expected scientifically. The details aren't important in this context except to say the generalization that prolonged high temperature and an undisturbed surface tend to form this thing called a hydrophobic film. Woohoo! I've done science already and we're just nine and a half hours into the year. A hydrophobic film, and that means it is resistant to water. It sheds water. It does not interact with water. Okay, And in that sense, a hydrophobic film 
shields the earth beneath from this water. And in that sense, the earth is actively resisting what it most desperately needs. And so, eventually, seconds, minutes, hours, eons, depending on the characteristics of this film, physical and, physical and chemical characteristics, and maybe some characteristics of the water, eventually, the water gets to the earth. Eventually. Those of you who know gardening, maybe you take care of indoor plants at your house, know that the best defense against that kind of resistance to water is regular watering. And to keep the surface active. You don't want it to lay still all the time. It needs to be scritched up. And in an active soil, when you don't have to rake it yourself, it's the bugs and microbes that do that for you. Okay, so... The image I'm trying to conjure and the analogy I'm trying to make with this particular one is to the human heart. Like the very dry soil, we tend to develop resistance to that which we most desperately need. God calls that resistance sin. He has told us in His Word that we very, very much need the water of His baptism in His coming into our lives. And we need the cleansing of His sacrificial blood in His judgment and Lordship over us. But if we tap into those benefits only very occasionally, if we go long, long periods of time without connection to that providential, provenient care, we become like the soil. Hard resistant to nourishing effect. In periods of spiritual dryness, we tend to allow walls to form around our heart. And sometimes those walls are a result of pain, or fear, or pride, or envy. However it is they form, there they are, and that makes us resistant to things. And perhaps our most fundamental heart song of discipleship is that we have to find a way if we're going to effectively declare His coming in song and then effectively declare His Lordship in making disciples, we have to effectively declare in our lives that we have accepted baptismal cleansing and sacrificial blood. The things we do every day in our lives, our priorities, our relationships, our decisions, everything we do has to reflect baptismal water and sacrificial blood. And if it does, great, that's the way you make disciples. You have to say very little. It's what you do. But if our lives don't match that sort of behavior, then our shouts from the mountaintop are just so much more noise. And I'm sure we can agree we don't need much more noise in our lives. So, image number two. Perhaps some of you have heard of the ancient Japanese art of kintsuki. Perhaps some of you have heard of it and just don't even realize that's what it's called. In translation in English, the word means literally golden joinery or golden repair. And in practice, it's a method to use lacquer impregnated with gold 
to glue together pieces of pottery and ceramic. Centuries ago, that became a very popular art form through most of Eastern Asia. Started in Japan, I think. Picture a very nice piece of of pottery or ceramic. A, A cup, a vase, a bowl, a plate, anything that you can think of. And then it's more than it's just a functional utilitarian thing. It's, it's a piece of art. And it's very finely decorated. Maybe it has etchings or engravings on the surface or some, some patterns of ridges or a, a scene of some kind that's carved into it or molded. Maybe it's painted a beautiful color. Uh, maybe several beautiful colors altogether. And in addition to being functional, it can be very beautiful. Now, picture the same thing broken. Cracked, hole in it, handle fell off the cup, what have you. Repaired with kintsuki, now everywhere there used to be a crack or a dent or a chip or a hole, there's a very visual gold repair. You can see easily online pictures of this stuff. And if you're particularly interested, look on eBay. That stuff sells for gazillions of dollars. Chris is back there nodding. I hope that's not what you bought everybody for Christmas this year. Okay, not this year. All right. But the the point is that depending on the number of cracks and the number of issues that this particular thing has, this piece of pottery that someone is trying to repair, It can look like a road map of gold going through it. And to some, that's very visually distracting. But to others, that adds tremendous value to it. Now, you already know I'm not talking about DIY fixes for pottery. But I want to draw some important parallels here that we need to hear. The art of Kintsuki is based in an ancient Buddhist philosophy about achieving maximum potential. And this philosophy says that rather than hiding flaws, or discarding that which is flawed, there is great energy and love and effort in the process of repair. The process to fix something, the process to heal a person, And that adds great value in making this thing become its best self, its best vessel, its best person, its best whatever. And so, Kintsuki is also called the art of precious scars. And described that way, the purpose of the philosophy, the intent is that you dishonor something that you simply discard because it is flawed or broken. But instead, you honor it. You honor yourself and this broken thing in the effort to repair it and make it be what it was meant to be. So, I won't have you for a second thinking that I'm suggesting you need to abandon Methodism for Buddhist practice this morning. But the parallels should be obvious. Like the walls we build around our hearts, we can't expect to project perfection and have that be consistent with our calling to make disciples. Everybody knows we aren't perfect. And to try to project that, and because I'm perfect, here's what you need to do, 
is very, very counterproductive. And if you've had that kind of discussion with anybody, you already know that's counterproductive. People just shut down on you. But the, when, when cracks appear in the walls around your heart, when, when cracks appear in that polished veneer of our lives we want to present to people, when cracks appear in the hardness of our certainty of how we interpret Scripture and how we deal with politics and how we interact with people who are a little bit different than us, think a little differently or behave a little differently or have had different experiences in life, when those cracks appear, it's a warning. You're losing elasticity. You're getting too hard. You need to let yourself change. You need to be changed. You need to be repaired. And so when you yield to those things, and I suppose we can argue that these cracks are the way God's light gets into our dark places and helps us, but to go on, our cracks have to be repaired. So perhaps rather than hiding the fact that we're imperfect, hiding the fact that we've overcome something, maybe we should celebrate it. Maybe we should give ourselves over to that so that we can help other people who are suffering the same things. That's what I'm trying to say that this heart song of discipleship is. It requires you to say nothing from the mountaintop. It requires you to be healed and be not proud of the sin that got you there, proud of the love that fixes it. That's the thing, right? Okay, one more image for you. Our Sunday school class, the Sunday school class I lead, has begun a very spiritual study of a secular book called I'll Push You. And I very, very rarely make a recommendation of a book in this setting or to anybody else, but I think you'll be hard-pressed to read a better book in the coming year. So I'm going to suggest you look at it. It's called I'll Push You, and it was published in 2017, written by best friends Patrick Gray and Justin Skisa. They've been best friends since that high. Uh, Patrick is a fully able-bodied man. He is approaching middle age, wife, two kids, all the, all the stuff, you know. And Justin is very, very similar. They're the same age, same sort of family situation, except Justin suffers from a progressive neuromuscular disease, much like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And as a result, his body is rapidly deteriorating. The book is about how, each in their own way, these best friends, Patrick and Justin, experience personal and spiritual growth as they undertake a 500-mile walking pilgrimage across northern Spain on a route called the Camino de Santiago, the Way of St. James. And the obvious catch, the draw-in for the book, perhaps, is that Justin can do almost nothing for himself. He cannot use his legs. He cannot use his arms. His fingers have some amount of mobility that allows him to work a knob on a wheelchair or a few buttons on a computer. He cannot dress himself. He cannot feed himself. He cannot do personal hygiene. He cannot potty. 
None of it. And I know you're already thinking, 500 mile walk? How is this happening? Patrick, with the help of a lot of other people, and some of it quite surprising help, manages to pull, lug, tug, carry Justin 500 miles over this six-week pilgrimage. And the book is like a, I will describe it as an annotated diary of their experiences in this event. And I find it to be a very compelling spiritual story about the meaning of friendship, about what it means to truly submerge yourself in Sabbath and what that means, what Sabbath really is, a relaxation to and from. And most importantly, the kind of trust that Jesus expects from us in our walk. So to that end, the third image here is one point early in the book, Justin and Patrick are discussing this decision and it's becoming real that they're going to try this crazy thing. And, and you know that moment when you've made a decision and it passes from idea and concept into it's happening? And it changes it, doesn't it? It changes it. And Justin shares this thought. Justin is the one who is disabled. Justin shares this thought for the readers. He says, I don't know if what I'm asking is even possible, but I know this for absolute sure. I would not even dare to attempt it with anyone other than Patrick. Now, aside from the various obvious massive pile of pressure that places on Patrick, I think it obviously asks us a very spiritual question too. And I think the question is, can you see that that's how Jesus wants you to think of Him in your walk? That you wouldn't dare to try it with anybody else? So, think of the, the friend's situation here. Can you... Do you live your life as your heart song of discipleship, the kind that people say, wow, that person is willing to take on a task that the rest of the world thinks is impractical or maybe even impossible? Are you willing to sit in Justin's chair and let someone else drive the wheelchair? Are you willing to stand in Patrick's place and give more than you could conceivably think possible in that way over that amount of time. That's the heart song we're being asked about in this song. We sing it, we shout it from the mountaintop. But unless we live like that, so what? So what? So, Jesus tells us in this scripture we read this morning, to teach all things that I've commanded you. Teach them all things I've commanded you. And that sounds like a colossally sized ass to me. I can barely get myself dressed in the morning. Teach them all things I've commanded you. So we're no one's masters. We cannot compel behavior. And we're all sinners, so we can't project perfection. 
but in recognition of the walls both erected and torn down around our hearts. In honor of the grace we have received in this golden repair we've all received. And in exuding the trust that Jesus asks of us living in that way, we can open the eyes of others to possibilities, to expectations, like any good teacher might. And so I'll conclude with a quote from Max Lucado that I find very inspiring most days. To call yourself a child of God is one thing, but to be called a child of God by those who observe your life is another thing altogether. Peace be among you, and amen. You know, another part of that big ask is that it seems so overwhelming, but I will remind you of the last line of the Scripture we read this morning. And Jesus says, And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. So, let's uh, receive a blessing together. And now may the most excellent grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit go with each of you now and always and bring you peace in 2023 and beyond. And all God's children said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.